Welcome to the Tactics Meeting. I'm your host, Dan Smiley, and here on the program, we talk about all things emergency response, although admittedly with a bent towards oil spill response. And today on the program, we have Kim Estes, formerly the Director of Emergency Response for ARCO, and now is going to talk to us about investigations done by the National Transportation Safety Board. Super interesting. I hope you enjoy it. Kim Estes, graduate of California Maritime Academy, chief engineer, Emmy Award-winning actor, NTSB investigator. Welcome to the program. It is so nice to be here, Dan. Thank you very much. We go way back. Way um, back. We go way back. And, you know, I think, uh, uh, full disclosure, um, I uh, had the opportunity to work with you and uh, got a chance to gaze at your brilliance back then. So that's full disclosure. Let let I just I wanted to let I wanted to let the crowd know that I like you. That's you know that's important. So it's different when you have somebody who is neutral. But I, I like you, so it's a good thing. It is a good thing. I learned a lot from from you. All the drills we did together with uh, Nicole Franks at NJ Resources. Uh, your uh, compadres from the Arco days, Suzanne Lagoni and Barry McFarland. Uh, these are people that I still rely on, still call friends. I called Barry just the other day to get some response advice. Hey, I'm thinking about doing this. What do you think of that? It wasn't actually on a response. It was pre, pre-planning, but it's like, hey, you know, these guys are kind of expensive, but I think you use them. What do you think? It's nice to have friends. Yeah, it is nice. It's nice to have at least have resources to to go to, uh, you know, especially in, in uh, well, in both non-critical or critical situations. I mean, it's nice to have those those words of wisdom from people who may have already been there and done that. And that's how that's how that's how we survive. I mean, that's how we live is is uh, not being afraid to use the resource resources at your disposal, unencumbered or or encumbered either way. But just to be able to, in this world today, you're able to get that advice from somebody around the world, and because we can network with them and have them on the on the phone or the computer and be able to pick their brains in a large manner or a small manner. So it's a good thing, right? So yeah, very capturing much- this stuff in this in this podcast format. You know, I had Elliot Taylor from Polaris talking about the environmental unit and dispersant approval in Washington. And then I went straight into our worst case tabletop where I was the incident commander. And I used every single thing that I learned from him in that drill. I felt really well teed up. Mm -hmm. It is, um, it's amazing. I mean, our world is, I think our world is kind of small, uh, but big at the same time. I think our that, that response world, that world of knowledge, those people who you've run into, who are good people, people who don't fold under pressure, and people who you know you can rely on 24 hours a day, seven days a week, at least to give you the information you need in the, in the background. Yep, that's great. So today we're going to talk about what happens kind of after the oil spill resp- the happens, the, the investigation, I guess it happens concurrently but the investigation into into cause but before we start that talk a little bit about who you are and how you got into oil spill response uh suzanne and barry they they all talk about kim estes arco marine incident commander and back in the day how did you get into this biz well what i stumbled into this uh i would you know i okay so everybody they don't know, but they, you said chief engineer, but I sailed for uh, almost 14 years in the Arco fleet. And I started as a third assistant engineer and then worked as chief engineer. And then after that time period, I came ashore and managed um, fleet engineering and maintenance and voyage repairs for the Arco fleet. So instead of being chief on one ship, I now have 14, 13, you know, 10, 11, 12 ships whatever the fleet was. And so I was responsible 24 hours a day, seven days a week for that repair group while the ship was doing their voyage. Not so much shipyard, 
but could be utilized in shipyard. So past that point, right past that point, I got involved in the government relations. And then I was involved in the emergency response group. I went up to attend a drill um, in, in uh, I think it was Valdez. Uh, our, our person, our lead person at the time was, um, um, I can't remember who that is, but anyway, our lead person got sick uh, at the drill. I had to, to, to step in and be incident commander and our drill at that time we had gotten so far in the hole, I don't think we made it out in time. But the next, we had to go back up and, and finish. We got all our stuff done. So I became incident commander then. So that was 90, 92, 93, somewhere around there. And then uh, we brought in, I brought in Tiffany Rao, um, who brought in Nicole uh, Alessi uh, then. Uh, Nicole Alessi staff was Frank's now. And um, and she became our drill planner advisor. And then from that point on, we became almost flawless in ARCO emergency guidance and incident support. So we became, we were already known to be, since we had the biggest liability, our 10 ships, we were known to be a group that could respond. Everybody's bag was packed. Everybody had an idea. We drill and train two or three times a year. And we could respond and go anywhere. It was like everybody else's go team. And um, uh, we we're like a well-oiled machine with a variety of people from around the company filling in various spots, but they were all, all trained in about two or three deep. So you evolve that to, that's how I met Suzanne Lagoni because she was doing um, what she could do to guide me in the area of being the person in charge. And uh, when you're the incident commander, you can answer all the questions. And how you answer those questions are very important. How you, what's your relationship with the Coast Guard, what's your relationship with the state and any of the local areas um, uh, the, involving, involved in their contingency plans and, and the um, uh, tribal interface as well. So that's where Suzanne was able to guide me um, and make sure that I was proficient at, at that because it means a lot to the company. And then um, people like Barry McFarlane came in and guided the rest of the, 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 the response. I mean, it's, it's wonderful to have had an association with those people, the Tiffany Rouse, the Nicoles, uh, uh, Nicole Franks, the Barry McFarlane's, the Richard Rangers and um, Suzanne Lagonis, and uh, also a lot of the other senior execs from from Atlantic Richfield company at the time and then, then BP. So that's my experience, Mike. That's how I got involved in um, drills and thrills and spills. And from that, um, once I left the company um, and hung up my own shingle, I was able to work with Nicole and you and, and uh, others uh, in, in uh, organizations that wanted some expertise and guidance in that world of incident command and being part of that and being able to share some thoughts and words of wisdom to the um, spill response community. And you, That's a very long answer, Dan, to a no, very a, short it, question. It's a perfect, a perfect answer. And I'll depart oil spills just for a minute because you're the only uh, actual celebrity that I, that I know. How did you get into <laughs> acting and what did you win your Emmy for? Okay, so this is this is with a strange world of it's a, it's a, all acting. This is how how acting works because sometimes you never know. Sometimes it's they call it being at the right place at the right time, and it just so happened that years ago when I was sailing on ships and back in in uh, probably eighty one eighty two, um, I met a group of people over and I was living in uh, Castro Valley, California at the time, um, uh, in the Bay Area. And uh, I met a group of people who were actors that were in San Francisco, they went to ACT, they were in theater, they were taking acting classes, but because I was still on ships, I could only stay and hang out with them for a couple of months at a time. And then I'd go back to sea for a couple of months. So, you know, agents didn't want to hear that, that fact that you can, <laughs> they, they can only have me and, and uh, push forth my wares for a couple of months at a time. And 
by the time they pushed forth my wares, which was, you know, everything I had, uh, it was time for me to go back out to sea so I couldn't commit to anything. So it was very tough. I froze that because I moved to Los Angeles and took the job after I sailed um, uh, with Arco, came ashore. I was on a page of 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So no, no, nothing. And, and then uh, BP bought Atlantic Richfield Company. And when BP bought us, uh, and I knew that I was going to be made redundant, I stayed a year with the company to guide them through. At that time, I was head of... Um, head of the corporation's uh, environment, health, safety, sustainability, um, aviation. I had a bunch of titles, but I was corporate. But they were going to get rid of all the corporate people, and I was one of them. And uh, so as I knew I was going to leave, I was BP's, um, one of BP's directors for environment, health, safety, sustainability for the Americas. And as I knew I was going to leave, I hung my shingle out into the acting world, took a shotgun approach, some agents bid on it, and then I became uh, an actor um, in Hollywood. I got my first role in 2004, because BP bought us in 2001, somewhere around there, 2000, 2001. Got my first role in the show called Commander-in-Chief with Gina Davis, a very short-lived series, uh, but it was a wonderful series for me, since it's, you never forget your first. And then from there, I got little bits and pieces, bits and pieces, bits and pieces, and still today getting, you know, bits and pieces, guest star roles. And um, um, uh, a couple of friends, a, a friend recommended me to another friend who was directing a, a short form series, which short form is less than 15 minutes, and, um, but greater than two minutes. And uh, it had to be at least six episodes. So we, we did the six episodes. And in this, um, uh, the show was called Dicks, because, short for detectives, because I had two female detectives who were very funny ladies. Uh, and I played their boss. I was a straight guy. So um, it made it very easy for me to be the, 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 the uh, hardened uh, uh, sergeant who was in charge of these two very funny women and and not laugh um so that was um enough ammunition to load it up into the emmy category and so we ended up uh being on the pre-emmy nomination ballot and then we went to the emmy the emmy ballot uh and then we went to the emmy ceremony and uh that series myself, since I was um, nominated for Outstanding Actor in a Short Form Series, Comedy or Drama. And uh, we won, I, I won, um, thanks to the two funny women and the director, and just for grabbing me and throwing me in this, this short form series, uh, six or seven episodes of just sheer fun. So uh, as I tell people, don't, Google this on the company computer to try to find that show. It's Dick's The Series. It is, it is not. Don't. IT will be all over you if you just Google and try to find it. It's very hard. Yeah, it's, just don't do it. Dick's The Series or Dick's The Movie or some, anything but. Just just don't look the, the, the standard word up. So um, that's... Um, the cross. Good advice. Very good advice. That's the cross between um, uh, environment, health, and safety, and emergency response, and um, what what I also do today. It's that that strange thing where you're allowed to to play in as many worlds as as you can. And since the good thing is, uh, from the environmental standpoint, we don't spill as much as we used to. And so therefore the occasion to respond or to assist in a response is a little bit different than it used to be uh, in, in years past. And we like that. We, do, we still drill and train and I still will drill and train um, with Nicole and, and, uh, and her company. And, um, you know, just to impart knowledge, if it, if it needs to be imparted, you've got newbies. Organizations change all the time. They may or may not be aware of the training may not have sunk in, but it's nice to have 
uh, hands-on or a trainer or a coach and, and, and have, watch people stumble through it and give them some advice. So that's also part of what I do, but the acting piece is also there. Commercials um, and also um, uh, films and, and television. And the Emmys, by the way, is, in case people don't know, it's television. Yeah. All right. That's awesome. Well, you're also doing investigations for the National Transportation Safety Board. How did you get hooked up with that? Well, uh, when the Costco Busan happened um, in San Francisco, the San Francisco Bay, the, 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 they hit the Bay Bridge, split open like a little uh, like a sardine can on the side of the ship, supposed to boil into the bay. And I was nominated by, I think, the attorneys who um, were handling the, the event on the Costco Busan side. So you get, they get to nominate people who are on different committees and working different angles. And, you know, some is engineering, some is, but investigations. Uh, I was with the NTSB. Uh, lead on on that show and we interviewed and interviewed and interviewed all the major players um, that had anything to do with that event and when I say the way they interview is classic because um, they go minute by minute by minute and even break that down into half minutes if they really feel they need to know what button you pressed when and what sequence and where were you exactly and what did you do exactly right after that they want to know the movements and the detail so that they can piece together all these events that uh, led up to this event and not only led up to but what did you do right after which was part of the investigation of, of uh the response, how fast or how quick or how how to, to some degree how slow uh, did this process evolve? And they just wanted to know by timeline what happened, and that to me was um, intense. Not, I mean, I was on the investigations; we were asking the questions, but watching people uh, in that environment. When we've got them in a room, there's I think three or four of us uh, watching people uh, recollect what they did and how they did it, and what second and who, who they called, what they wrote down, or where were you exactly, and were you on the road, were you in your car, were you what were you doing? Um, so yeah, uh, that led to working with them, and we went up and interviewed people on two different occasions. The first one was a couple of months and the next one, the stint was a, was a couple of months. And then the next stint was uh, a couple of weeks. But yeah, we, um, we did that and it, it worked out uh, well. For, it, for me, from an educational standpoint, nothing like it. And so even up to this day, how I, my understanding of how all that works uh, with NTSB, is valuable because they don't mess around. They just want to know what happened. And in the words of the NTSB with Casco Busan, and also in another case that I'm dealing with currently, uh, which is active investigation, you know, it's always, always nice, uh, you call this nice, but if you have an event where people don't die, it's a bonus because you get a chance to talk to everyone. Whereas when they're coming upon a plane crash where there may not be any survivors, they have to piece together everything themselves with, uh, without talking to a soul. And so uh, there's, a, there's a light side of investigations and there's a heavy side. And the heavy side is really uh, you know, trying to figure out in your head and talking to yourself and trying to figure out why things happen the way things happen. Why did this go bump in the night? And um, fortunately, in, in both these cases, or the one I'm working on now and the ones in the past, I've been able to, we've been able to talk to everybody but, um, and, and walk through a methodology of, of time frames. So you, you say that the education involved in 
witnessing this investigation was was valuable. What what can you tell me as an oil spill response incident commander? You know the ships hit the the bridge. The ships out coming out of Oakland. It it uh, fails to turn in time. Hits the Bay Bridge. Right. This is the pilot. This is the captain. Uh, the oil spill response organization gets called, and now I get the call, and I may be 15 minutes in, I might be two hours in, I, you know, I'm, what can you tell me about the investigation? When is it going to start, and what, what do I need to do knowing that this investigation is coming? You know that it is, it is happening. You, you know that this event has happened. Therefore, now you're a person with knowledge and, if, and they're gonna wanna know what it is you're doing at that moment you got the call. What, what so, so starting there, either somehow you've got to record it. You've got to write it down. Your phone ledger will be fine for who you called. I will tell you that they will go, they will have your phone records and they want to know what happened between the time you called this number and the time you called that number. They'll even know, they'll know by between the time you called Bob and Hank, what were you doing? Even if it's something as simplistic as going to the scene, uh, driving while you're on the phone or off the phone, calling whom who else did you call was there any other means of of um, communication that's not on this phone record were you using walkie talkies were you, was there anything that 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 you were communicating to anyone else during this period of time i mean it's it's that fine of a point so I, my advice is to somehow whether it's digitally in your iTalk through your iPhone or any of those other apps, get a record, keep a record and keep talking into the machine to make sure you have back traced everything you've done since the time you now became knowledgeable. And therefore they're gonna look at all those to make sure that the response was handled correctly. Now, you're gonna know, you know if the response was handled correctly. So you're gonna, you're gonna get that that done however they want to know you know what phone calls you made who you who you made what time you made those calls uh who'd you talk to how long was that conversation they know what they can see it in the phone records they're going to ask you 60 questions and they all know they they know already they already know the answers to the 60 questions so anything other than that uh, they're going to say excuse me you know they're going to they're going to they're going to dig a little deeper because they they already know when I arrived on the scene of the Costco Busan and I was there and I was uh, nominated as being uh, being on the team of the NTSB, I arrived in a room and they had a stack of probably two or three inches thick of paper on everybody they were going to investigate. And this is like day two. This is like the second day I was I was up there. They had a stack with pictures, background, all the information from the captains, the, all the ship's officers. They had all that data. It is incredible. About the oil spill response team, do they already have data on them too? I, that I that I didn't know. I didn't see that. But they had data on 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 the principal players that were involved in the event. Not uh, not I didn't see that on from the response side of the fence. I wasn't in that tent. But the tent where people were, were, you know, when we're doing investigations, you're going to, the captain, the pilot, anybody who else was associated with talking to any of those individuals, they had a dossier on them. So when I'm being questioned by the NTSB, is this like a legal deposition? Am I under oath? No. I saw no one giving any oaths. It's not an oath, but bam. If it comes to the point of what it is you did, they probably already know the answer to the question. And they just want to hear it from you in case there's other things that are additional, meaning they know who you called. They got your phone records already. They know they know the time frame. 
they don't know what it is you wrote down. And if you wrote down stuff, that's awesome. But they don't know certain things and, and they're filling in gaps. And those gaps will tell the story of, of how, how effective, well, not so much. I don't think they're the gauge of effect of, of response uh, effectiveness. They're not the, the gauge that just, that it was handled according to the way we say it's supposed to be handled. Who's supposed to call who and what time? And that's mostly, and was that right? Did all the protocols fit? Is this the stuff we wrote, we wrote down? Oh, we missed a step. Okay, so who was supposed to call blah, blah. Okay, so that was covered by somebody else. All those things will funnel down into the report and say, okay, so this was done, this was done, this was done. They'll say, by whom, by whom, by whom? And that's what they wanna know. Was there, were there any gaps? Was there something somebody did to not um, uh, handle this in a textbook manner? So what happens when they find things that were not done correctly? It, it's written in the report. Then the reports, you know, they, they don't do the report right away. It's up in Washington somewhere. They'll refine it. We went back, like I said, you know, we filled to make sure that we had the information that we needed. We were all called back if we were available to to do a second round of interviews with with people who might be helpful for us to fill in the gap of the investigation as it's set right then. So just to clarify, it's a clarifying round, basically. Another filtering round of information. And this was to make sure that, yeah, this was done, this was done by whom, this was done by it. So it's all filled in. And if it's not, then it's like, okay, so that wasn't done. And then you go back and recheck to make sure that wasn't done by somebody else. It could have been done by somebody else. And that's what, that's what happens. So were any of the uh, spill management team, OSRO personnel, uh, responders interviewed by the NTSB during that process? Yes. Absolutely. And I believe the, um, the incident commander was, for sure. And then there were a couple of other people, I think, within his organization that may have been. But I know for sure, and I had to recuse myself because I knew Barry. Right. So I couldn't be in the, I couldn't be in the room. I, I did it myself. I said, you know, um, not me, because I know him well. I used to, he used to work for me. So uh, they, did the, they did what they needed to do, and I was outside the room. So that's fine. It worked out. It worked out well. Uh, from the standpoint, from my knowledge, from the standpoint of, of um, uh, running an effective response as per textbook or as per written doctrine, then it, it went well. The other, you know, the other part, the elision, you know, with the bridge, the, the root cause, the causal factors, all those things, um, those were the uh, other team uh, that were doing that part of the investigation were doing the, the aftermath, you know, what happened right after that, right. which included, you know, tour on the ship, tour of what happened, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the outside of the ship. So, yeah, it yeah, was good. She, yeah, she looked like she'd been taken open by a can opener. That's exactly right. Yeah, like a child's toy, like a can of sardines. Yeah, it was beautiful. I'd only seen that one at the time, actually. And at that point in time, I was working for the for Atlantic Ritual Company. They did... They didn't hit that bridge, but they hit the, I think the Calcinus Bridge and did the same thing up there. But they were in ballast, so there was no oil. Gotcha. Yeah, I had Barry on the on the podcast, and we talked about the early hours of the of the Costco Busan and how the uh, spill volume came to be so vastly underreported, and the the communications uh, errors that. Uh, really appeared to come out later as part of the NTSB investigation. Was it, did you have a role in that? No. Well, I would like to say no, but probably yes. We, we tried to figure out why there was such a big gap, you know, which was, would, was you know, 
you see numbers and then all of a sudden you see more numbers and you go, what, who reported this and why? And what time did you report this and why? That was the bigger question. How much you knew when you knew it and what is the reason you used for uh, not coming forward with information sooner to help the cause? Not to really, you know, this is not anything, there's no trade secrets here. It's no intercompany secrets either, but some reason, for some reason or another, um, somebody decided to hold on to some numbers and uh, until either they got superior approval or for whatever reason. And um, uh, those numbers were revealed. So um, it worked out well. It worked out reporting wise well so well and they they over responded as is always our plan right so they weren't yes. the response wasn't caught flat-footed they just didn't have good numbers in the beginning but I right don't think, i don't think it would have made any difference to the amount of resources that were mobilized at the time right and i always believe that um uh since we do that since we do respond with with a lot more than what they need um that's the benefit of 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 the respond response agencies to the extreme benefit to bring all the horses out of the barn and then take them back if you don't need them. So you take it takes a while before these reports came out. Just today, the report for the Golden Ray uh, capsizing and and sinking came out just a hair over two years after the incident <laughs> actually took place. I haven't actually read more than the executive summary, but I'm looking forward to, to going through that. Uh, is that typical, two years? Yes, it is. It's two years. I, I think the, the Costco Busan was two years or maybe more. I wasn't sure, but I think it was. It was quite a bit of, uh, I mean, they had a lot of data to look at. I mean, they had a lot of things going on. It wasn't just the response. It's now you're going into, you know, why did the ship leave the dock? What conditions did the ship leave the dock? You know, weather, personnel, had everybody had the rest hours and then had everybody had the drug test. And it's like, that's a lot of data. That's a lot of stuff when you start talking about digging, digging, digging into the investigation. And that's what they do. And that's what they're supposed to do. In this case, with the Golden Ray, I, I read the uh, a summary as well, and it it, it just draws a, a light to I I in in my spare time and in, in the time I have some of it, I donate some some time to um, um, Matson, the shipping company, and I do some internal audits for them, and um, before the external people get there, like ABS or DMBGL. Um, so they do the certification, but all I do is I'm the external set of eyes that, that uh, gives the ship a, a once over and exposes things that, that I see could be issues coming up. And uh, so one of the things that I, that in our particular ships have to have cargo max done. Um, the program, uh, a program has to be run at least once every six months. But when they the term of stability report needs to be in the logbook when the ship is ready for departure. And the check and balance to that report is, is such that it cannot be, it should not be the same numbers, of course, that you entered with. There should be a differential. I don't know to what degree the captain would... Um, validate or verify the chief mate's trim stability report, which is just one of those other things. I mean, you, you, you have to go through something like this in order to get at something like that um, to where there's a system in place to um, validate that the report that comes out on trim stability is something you can sail with, is something that is legit, is something that you would think that your chief mate would be like on the ball with this thing because he knows where he or she knows where every bit of cargo is on that ship and 
And uh, those factors are taken into consideration. And from what I saw on the, uh, in the report today, in looking at some of the testimony from the, from the pilot, he said that thing went over pretty quickly. And then he tried to heal it back the other way and it did not want to come back. And it just continued to go all the way over. So, I mean, you know, to, to, to the list it had 61 degrees, I think it was, but it was, um, it, you rely so much on the proficiency of who you have in those positions that will keep you out of harm's way. And one of those is the chief mate. Um, and if he's got that wrong, um, red flag should be all, going off all over the ship because it definitely affects your sailing. That's one thing. And the other thing, which none of the massing ships have, they have some degree. I've seen them on some ships where they have um, uh, passage doors, uh, especially that lead to the outside or to the, to the atmosphere. Those doors must be closed before sailing and they have to ensure that those doors are closed. And there's a panel up on the bridge on some ships, not on, like I said, I haven't seen them on the massive ships, but you want to ensure that that door uh, leading to the atmosphere or to the sea is closed before you, you take off. Well, so shouldn't, I that, think, and it, shouldn't that be logged by the officer of the watch? Yeah, it should be. And like I said, some ships uh, have uh, indicator lights saying, yes, closed, yes, closed. You know, verified, and then there should actually be a, a physical check of those because sometimes, you know, things fail, systems fail, especially electronic systems. Maybe that maybe that indicator stuck somewhere, but you still need to have eyes on that thing. Send somebody down there and say, "Hey, yeah, this door, this port is closed. This access to the ocean or the atmosphere is shut." And that way, you know, you're ensuring. How, how long does that take? I don't know. Just the, the, it takes a couple of minutes. If somebody's down there just to ensure, put eyes on it, make sure that it has sealed itself. However, we've gotten so specialized in our shipping these days to where, you know, you've got 20 person crew, 22 person crew, and they're all over that nine, 900 to 1000 foot ship. And they're trying to do all the things they need to do in a specific time frame because they're under the gun because you can't, you know, you have work hour rules and you have to be, you have to give people the rest hours. And so it becomes a, it becomes something that, and I haven't seen that in this report yet where they talk about the time and who should have done it, and the verification, I haven't read that part yet, but it just comes to, because I do do the, the audits, all those things are important. Are people getting their, their rest hours? Or are they, are they able to get their task in in the time period that says, you know, I've got to, I can't work more than 16 hours in a 32-hour period. And so you've got to be able to give people their downtime. And then in that downtime, uh, they can't be disturbed. And so you got to make sure all your work is done in the time period that you have them, uh, or else you have to, by law, stop the ship and say, hey, we can't go any further. Everybody's maxed out on time. We got to get people their rest hours before we can sail the ship, pull over, anchor, get people their six to eight hours that they need rest, and then you can proceed along the way because everything else is a violation of law. So yeah, workloads, all that, everything has to do with getting the ship uh, import loaded and back underway. All of that um, is is um, under the eye of the uh, Coast Guard, NTSB. You start talking about fatigue, you start talking about making mistakes, you start about forgetting things in a hurry, in a rush to get to sea so that you can get your rest hours in. All those things are crucial and vital, everything. So there's a, there's a lot that uh, is under the microscope and should be. Fatigue is a killer. Fatigue is horrible. And it's worse. Uh, it's, it's worse. Many studies show that it's worse than alcohol. Oh, a, oh absolutely. A, trust me, this is in the 70s and I know it went on long before I got there um, in, in the shipping world where 
you didn't need to have a hangover to run into a pipe because you've only had two or three hours of downtime, you know, and, and uh, hurt yourself or be working and just bad things happen. It's, it's just, uh, a, it is a killer. It is something where the body just, it is, it is, it's bad. I mean, but this is what we, this is what we used to do before, before the Exxon Valdez, before open 90 work hours. And somebody said fatigue and very well could be, and probably was, and, and, and you hate to say it, but the, in the, some of the rulings or the, um, in the investigations of the Coast Guard and the NTSB, still is. Still well, we saw is this still. with towing accidents, right? There was a whole rash yeah. uh, decade or 15 years ago of, of tugs hitting, hitting bridges. And these tugs have really small crews. Generally, when they're doing inland towing, it's just a, a captain and a mate that are watchstanders. And they're either yep. standing six and six or 12 and 12. And... Uh, that doesn't count the time that they're mooring and unmooring and working cargo. So it's, you know, it's really easy to find yourself on watch having been up 18 or 20 hours. And, you know, I've got six hours of watch ahead of, ahead of me. And I always, I always thought it was a, a, a shame that the Coast Guard's solution to that problem was not change the manning rules so that there was were three watchstanders. So they were going four and eight, but to just require more training. I'm sorry, you can train me all day long. I'll take all the courses you want. Uh, you can give me all the certificates in the world. If I'm tired, I'm still tired. That's exactly right. They, they didn't solve the problem. And, yeah. and it actually always kind of made me angry. It is It is uh, definitely a, uh, a big topic of discussion still. The Coast Guard, ABS, the MVGL, they all look... Um, they all look at the the work hour timesheets. It's all computerized now. Um, most for most for most companies, people put in their own hours and they log into the machine, making sure that if there are violations of uh, the rest hours or the time off hours, then there's a reason or some type of rationale for that. So, and really no excuse, but they will make sure that if there's if there was something they were doing, does it meet the letter of the law from an emergency standpoint where you where that person had to do that? Cargo's not one of those emergency uh, uh, tickets. It's not a pass. Cargo uh, operations are not a pass to uh, violate the work rules because <laughs> cargo, it's just, you can't do that. Maintenance and repair uh, is not a pass. Uh, if it's in the middle of the ocean, you have to pass because you you need to get that thing done as soon as possible. And it, and there's a reason for that because you don't want to be floating around out there um, with no lights and no sound and uh, uh, no no energy, no propulsion. So yeah, there's a, there's a slight pass for that, uh, but there's still a lot of rationale. You have to really write it and make sure that that the NTSB and Coast Guard knows that the, the reason for this violation and it's got to be recorded. So not recording it and thinking that's just a pass, you look and start looking at people's overtime sheet and it doesn't match up to the time log. It goes, well, this person said he was down, but he's working four hours overtime uh, or eight hours overtime more than what it's showing on his electronic chart. Oh, they're going to watch and they're going to nail it because they're very good at it. And it's one of those things where if something goes wrong on a ship, that's one of the very first pieces of investigative data they're going to look at is the fatigue. I mean, you've got the obvious stuff, and then they're going to look at work hours, work hours to make sure that nobody did something while they were fatigued that could have led to this event. So that... NTSB is not a law enforcement organization, but they're going to take that report and pass it off to the Department of Justice. Yeah. What did did uh, are you aware of of any fallout um, from a, a, a legal or 
or uh, uh, prosec prosecution uh, type fallout from Costco Vasad? Did anybody go to jail? Well, I don't know. I, I think there were some, definitely some reprimands. I don't know to which degree. I can't remember, Dan, to tell you the truth. But yeah, there was there was some fallout. Um, because, and, and I'll, I'll put it to there were, you know, a couple of things. I think they found uh, 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 drugs in the system of the pilot and um, uh, there was an unfamiliarity with the radar nobody knew how to really work it because it was fairly new and so the, the shipboard people didn't know how to work it. and the captain the 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 pilot may have thought he knew but because uh apparently he didn't know there was an error and it was foggy you couldn't see the bow of the ship so you know there's there's a bu there's a bunch of things and, and, and it, it's not that i use that particular case but i always um, in a in a lecture I give lecture give and I'm going to give uh, corporate culture and, and uh, ethics and why things go bump in the night. You, you there are a couple examples of why people do things people do, and uh, apparently there was no reason that that ship had to leave that dock. There was no pressure from anyone, not the people. Um, in charge of the dock space, pilots didn't have a problem. The co the company itself apparently had no problem with the ship staying there, but it was a decision that was made on that bridge that we that we can leave, and we we should go now. And you and you're in fog. Why not wait for the fog to lift? I don't know. I don't know the answer. I don't know the answer to the question or their actual rationale they used. The actual words that were being said, I'm sure they're in a log somewhere. Um, but in in the in great um, uh, rationale that you use to do those things and make those maneuvers, and then they end up, yeah, you end up you end up in that position. Um, you you wonder uh, what type of culture was on the ship, and was it was anybody did anybody else have an opinion? other than the, the captain, the pilot, was the chief mate there, third mate, second mate. Would anybody be able to, was the culture, did the culture exist so someone would be able to say, hey, Cap, why don't we wait for the fog to lift and then we can get out of here. And there are a couple of cases, which I talk about in the, present, in the presentation about just one person stepping up if your culture allows that one person to ask the question, raise the hand and go, hey, what about if we, and yeah, everybody knows the captain's God on the ship. And, but if your culture says, I can ask God a question and God will not chew my head off for giving me an answer. Uh, so if you can ask the person in charge the, the, the question and that person is able to, that captain is able to absorb that question take it in and then give an explanation as to why it's right or why it could be wrong that's a whole different culture game whole different that way you've got a team player scenario going on there you've got the captain you've got the mates you've got people who can ask the questions and being able to to caution or hold off on something or do something just a little bit differently which doesn't do any harm to anyone. So um, those types of cultures, uh, the company cultures, I love, even though it starts way up at the top, the, the hierarchy ashore has to be able to say, that's, that's okay to do. And to be able to put captains on board ships that, that are based on true bridge team management or true engine room team management or true shipboard team management, to be able to come up with the best decisions, uh, maybe not to outrun that storm. Maybe let's turn around a little bit. Let's go backwards a little bit and we'll be okay. The company will be all right with that. They didn't tell you you couldn't do it, but you're in charge out here. Don't run into that thing. Turn around and go the other way or get better information before you charge off. Just those, the ability for your teams to be able to give you input um, to keep you out of harm's way 
is is uh, those are the best cultures I've seen. And I did the investigation. We're doing the investigation with Lloyd's Register on the on the Costa Concordia. Are you? Is that yeah. ongoing? I mean, that was no, a long no. time ago. That was a long time ago. But uh, Lloyd's Register asked me to come on board their team and do uh, emergency response. Uh, emergency management on this on uh, for the vessel. We did the the um, we ran a bunch bunch of scenarios on there, and we actually interviewed the people ashore and wanted to know their expectation of what the people on the ship would do. And then we interviewed the people on the ship. Was this pre grounding or post post for the rest post, of their fleet? To the rest of you know that's all carnival. All right. So it was. Holland, uh, Ibero, Costa, uh, Carnival, Princess. Uh, it was it was their whole world. Where uh, we had teams of of players who were asking the questions. Uh, four or five of us at a time. We had uh, people who were. Uh, just interested in why people do the, the things they do, you know, uh, from from just a, a thought perspective. It's it's one of those things where, how does your team function? And we were able to find out what happens, what what happens, and not so much. And we actually went to Costa as well. So we were able to find out. We were sailed on this ship. We took the ship out for a week. We were on a ship for a week. So we got to interview the crew, top down. And then as we could randomly um, pop down to the engine room or to other places to find out how safe people felt. How were they trained? Were they trained well? Do they Were they comfortable with emergency response? We asked passengers, were they comfortable with emergency response? What, what they have been trained to do, the drills they're training. So, I mean, we did the whole gamut, but it's, it's one of those things where the, the culture was different um, depending on where you were, depending on the ship, depending on the company, what country you were in, we went right. everywhere. The, nation the nationality of the crew. Yeah. The place of difference. I remember um, one of the, uh, a case study that I, I saw, I think it was in a resource, bridge resource management uh, course years ago with the uh, airline flight deck crew uh, on a, a flight heading into Columbia and the the plane was low and the co-pilot clearly didn't feel that he had the opportunity to tell to suggest to the pilot to the to the captain that that there was an issue and you can hear him on the on the voice recorder with his tone of voice saying you know we're below glide path we're you know we're below uh you know we have this you know mountain. basically they just flew it into the side of a mountain Without mm -hmm. ever discuss, you know, ever hearing any actual uh, comment that you know we're too low or whatever, whatever it was. So that, you know, uh, uh, flight deck resource management, you know, wasn't really a thing at that time. And that's where you know bridge resource management has really come out of aviation, right? Yes. Yeah, and it's so, it's so important. But I'll tell you it. It, it, it makes you, especially me, one of those strange old mariners, makes you feel really good when the captain says that all of us, he's talking to his team, his, his whole bridge team and the engine room team on the bridge before they sailed. I don't know what port we're in. I should have known this uh, because I, I wrote it down in my notes but it's like he tells them in this this team this this meeting before they sail that we are all responsible for getting this ship from point a to point b if i come on this bridge and yell out an order and it is a mistake it is your job to tell me to think about what it is i just said and it, that we're about to do it is your job, it is imperative that you question me and make sure that I've got this right. So nothing makes you feel better than that. Nothing well, should. And the other side of that is 
for the captain to make those bridge officers, that crew, feel that they can call him, that they're yep. not going to get criticized. I mean, you, you, if you, there's no fear of reprisal. Right. You call the captain at two o'clock in the morning. He comes to the bridge. There's nothing really wrong, and he gives you crap for waking him up. I guarantee you <laughs> that you're not going to call him the next time. And I yes. remember being a, a young watch officer sailing to Alaska. And, you know, one day I'm sailing up the inside and I'm, I'm coming up on Blackney Passage. And, um, you know, we've got a, a, a southbound cruise ship at Lizard Point. I'll never forget this. And I've got uh, two slow tugs up there and, and uh, uh, a lot of current running through Blackney Passage. And so I, I called the captain. And, uh, you know, I just, you know, our, my choice was really to keep going and go outbound a, or around, you know, past the tug on his, on his port side. But I was concerned about meeting that cruise ship as I came around the corner or slowing down and spending an extra two hours following this tug through the through the channel. Mm -hmm. And I decided it's not my call to make. So I called the captain. And the next day he told me, you know, every time we've come to these channels in the last, you know, two months of these trips, um, that he's gotten out of bed and stood out on the wing on the deck below, kind of keep an eye on things while I was on watch. He didn't really know me, right? And... After I finally called him when there was, you know, ha an issue, he's like, okay, now I, I know he is going to call if there's an issue. I can go to sleep now. So mm -hmm. that was a big, you know, thing for me that, you know, he, he was concerned about me too as a watch officer. Am I going to yeah. just try to bluff it out or am I going to call when I have a question? Because that's, you know, it's his ship, not my ship. Right. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that um, that trust issue is a, is a big one when you're dealing with uh, shipboard or bridge team management and interim team management. It is we used to have a chief engineer who used to be 80 feet up in the uh, in the upper fiddly watching the watch officers uh, at their desk downstairs, knowing and listening to the alarms. And he knew how the ship was running. He could feel it. It's, and when he felt comfortable, he could go to sleep. But until then, he, he wasn't going. He wasn't going to, especially with newbies, yeah. which are on the eight, eight to twelve watch. So he'd go to bed at midnight because he knew a more seasoned engineer was coming on board, coming on watch. So he could sleep then. But yeah, it is that, and and it is you know that communication, that trust piece, um, that is so helpful. And so we learned that a lot from the hierarchy ashore as well um, that they either did or did not trust. And part of that is the, is the training they instill in their officers when they select them, the onboarding process, the evaluation process. It's like, okay, so I trust this person. They've made all those things, evaluations from other officers, 360, um, uh, type of, of um, uh, evaluations from their peers. All those things uh, should be taken into consideration when, um, especially if Shoreside trusts them, that, that, that needs to somehow be uh, ex explained to the shipboard group. There was a lot of none of that going on in some of the companies that, that we interviewed. Uh, they didn't believe in it. They believed the ship was once it was away, it was away. And the ship also believed that once they were away, they were away and out of the, um, out of the, the, the uh, eyes of corporate. And so it was, uh, it was a lot of data that, that we got. I, hopefully the report was helpful. I don't know that any of the, a lot of the internal strife and struggle were in there. I think they wanted just the, the hardcore um, items that would not lead a team to, I mean, we talk about hierarchical things. Casa Concordia talks about the, um, the captain, you know, being off the ship and who's in charge and who makes decisions and who steps up and how can they step up? They've never stepped up before the junior officers, because that's treason. You'll end up on a sandbar somewhere, you know, at the next available one. 
And so uh, truly just the opposite of rich team management. When you have the, the captain as God and making those decisions and nobody stepping up and saying, hey, I think that that's just a little too shallow in there. We need to get out a little sooner. And and if you make that if you make that call, if you say that, then um, then you hope you're right. If you're wrong, then you have to worry about it the whole time. You know, the rest of the time you're sailing there because there's fear of reprisal. There is fear, and it's like, okay, I, I made I made a suggestion, didn't work. Okay, now he's gonna think I'm a you know a smart aleck or somebody who uh, just wants to say things or you are usurping your authority and you have no respect for the chain of command. It's like, oh, all right. So you know, it's a long way to go to get the teamwork approach to, to matter, to make it happen and to be acceptable and um, without getting angry and without uh, jumping all over somebody because they're making suggestions about what it is you're doing, so. Are US flag, uh vessel companies embracing this uh, cultural shift in bridge resource management or does it take an accident to get them to make a move in that direction i i think in in just about all cases accidents are great storytelling tools and um you hope that all of those sink in and i mean that they have you know, companies, large companies have seminars every couple of years to bring all their officers, their senior officers ashore. And so they're able to help them, coach them, guide them, um, instill upon them that this couple of things matter. One is your, your team. Uh, and, and the other thing, your work hours and fatigue matter. The other thing is that as best you can utilize all those resources because um, just because you are at the rank you are, whether it's captain or first assistant or chief engineer, there may be other ideas that, that might matter as well. And you just have to be able to absorb those, take those in and then be able to uh, respond. Uh, it's just like, you know, part of it is, it's, is what we value today as the near miss program. So most companies are handling a near-miss program by at least adding five or six or seven, maybe up to 10 near-miss items on the ship, things that could possibly hurt people, if not corrected. So the pride of the ship says, oh, you know, there's something wrong with their ship. We just fix things as we go along. But the, the beauty of a near-miss program is that everybody can input. And if you find it and you say something about it, now you can help somebody but you know, from from getting uh, from not getting injured in the future, and possibly in the whole fleet, because all that stuff is shared uh, fleet-wide, not just shipboard. It's shared shipboard, of course, because they talk about their safety meeting. But um, uh, they send those ideas also throughout the whole fleet, just to make sure it's not a matter of the same ship has the same class, same ship with the same class have the same issues, because they don't. But um, I just think it, that it's um, important that that uh, more um, uh, tools are utilized, which means more input from the people who are actually doing the job. Um, and then there's there's um, some type of, of reward for that. So what advice would you give to somebody in the oil steel community, I, I guess uh, crews on ships as well, if mm. they are facing, or potentially facing an NTSB investigation. Uh, tell the truth, because they already know the answers, pretty much. <clears throat> Just tell it like you got it, <clears throat> like you know it. Don't assume, don't, don't guess. Uh, trust me, they know more than what you think they know. Um, and if you're able to, if you were able to document what it is you did, when you did it, uh, who you talked to, who you called, um, uh, what your actions were, um, 
um, if you're able to write that down as soon as possible or, or put in your iTalk as soon as possible, do that. Do that. And, and that way you have a record of what went on. And not, everybody, not everybody's going to get interviewed, but they might. They might be. I think in this in this case, you know, uh, in, in the case that I'm working on currently, all members of the fire team, of every fire team, were interviewed. All people, because it, it was a it was a shipboard fire. There've been a lot of those this year. Apparently, there have been. <laughs> Apparently, there have been, and um, it was like boom, boom, boom. It was like three or four in a row. Which leads one to believe, um, you know, I, I, I just think more attention, I mean, more attention needs to be paid to, of course, your systems on the ship, whether they are, you know, your fire systems, your sprinkler systems, CO2 systems, and, and also uh, that, as well as people being able to operate them. Everybody should know how to operate them, how they function and just take the time to go through it with people so that they understand it. And I think that's important. Those are the big walkaway lessons from those. Right, those are good lessons learned. Yeah. Okay, Mestis, thank you so much for taking thank the time you so much. to come on the Dan's show. Smiling. Thank you, thanks for having me. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thanks for joining us for the tactics meeting. We interview subject matter experts about response tactics and technology. If you'd like to be on the show, you can email us. The email address is podcast at thetacticsmeeting.online.